Pentecost is to Christianity what ice is to ice cream. Perfect time to talk about it because we're about to be in ice cream season. Well, some of you are like, hey, I'm an annual round-the-clock ice cream eater. Can I say that one more time while you stand for the reading of the word? Okay, here goes. We're going to look at Acts 19. But Pentecost, that's what today is marked on the American calendars as. Today's Pentecost Sunday. Most everyone who would read that calendar wouldn't really know what Pentecost means. I remember when I was in fifth grade, a boy, my neighbor, made fun of me. He said, oh, you're Pentecostal? It's just worth a penny. Okay, so that's what people probably, that's about as deep as they get. But let me share something with you. Pentecost is to Christianity what ice is to ice cream. Imagine ice cream without having the icy condition. It's a soupy, warm puddle of totally unappetizing liquid. That's what Christianity is without Pentecost. I'm I'm just letting it sink in. I know nobody's running the aisles and getting excited over that. I thank God I'm a Christian, but can I tell you, being a Christian has got to be more carefully defined. And as a matter of fact, Christianity at large has got to be consumed with a whole new understanding of Pentecost. Amen. On the day of Pentecost, it happened. But watch this. Years later, Acts 19, it happened while Apollos, one of the apostles who was preaching the gospel, one of the evangelists who was very busy uh, teaching the gospel. He was at Corinth. Paul, the apostle, he passed through the upper regions, way, way far away from Jerusalem now, a long ways from the day of Pentecost epicenter where the Holy Ghost first fell. He came to Ephesus, and he, in finding some disciples, he said to them, here's what he said to these disciples, and I, I think it's pretty amazing that he found some disciples there that far away. And he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, unto what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John, yep, John was cool. John was the baptizer. In fact, his name was John the Baptist. And John indeed baptized with you with the baptism of repentance. But don't you remember what he said when he baptized you? He said that you need to believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized. Everybody say rebaptized. Absolutely. They had already been baptized, but they were baptized how? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> they were baptized in the name that is identified by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and identifies all the aspects of who Almighty God is. 
They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, just like these two were baptized here this morning. And the Bible says when they heard this, they were baptized. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied a whole world away and a whole multiple years separating them from the day of Pentecost. Can I tell you that the day of Pentecost was not for then and then only for a one-time event, but the day of Pentecost was not just for Jerusalem. It was not just for Palestine. It was not just for the Bible and the Holy Land, but Pentecost was for you, and it is for me, and it is for you and me today. It is for us on this Sunday, and I thank God for Pentecost Sunday. God bless you. You're welcome to take your seats. Welcome to all of our guests who are here. Thankful that you're here today. We'll get back to, we'll get back to talking about ice cream in just a minute, okay? Beginning last night at sunset, you may not have noticed there was a pretty sunset over the Rockies, but at that moment when the sunset, immense numbers of Jews around the world at their own sunset time, they began studying scripture and they did not sleep all night until sunrise this morning. They have been doing this for 3,333 years this year. 3,333 years. It's a meaningful festival for Orthodox Jews. Helping you to see it's more than just an unexplainable name on an American calendar. There is something behind it. So, Acts, excuse me, Exodus 19 is when the very first Pentecost Sunday happened. That was in Acts 19. Excuse me, I keep saying Acts. Exodus 19. I know I just read Acts 19. No wonder. But the Bible says in this verse, Exodus 19.10, watch this. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and then let them be ready for the third day. So that was a Friday, Saturday. On Sunday, the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And that was the Sunday that is traditionally understood as the day that the law was given to Moses. And the Orthodox Jews call it Shavuot. So happy Shavuot, everyone. If you want to join me in an Orthodox Jewish terminology, happy Shavuot, happy Pentecost Sunday. But if you stay in the Old Testament, you literally stay without a life change and without transformation, and you, you're, you really have nothing to, to expect to, to be different in your life because it's been 3,333 years, and through those 3,333 Orthodox Pentecost Sundays, there has not been a tear dried. There has not been a cancer healed. There has not been a life saved. There's not been the Spirit of God fall upon those who still see it as Moses' day. No, no, no. I, I got to tell you something. It, it started with Moses, brothers and sisters, but it didn't stop with Moses. Okay? We need, we need to catch this. Now, let me, let me get right back to that in a moment. But look at this. Penty, gone. Pentagonal. How many words can you think of to start with pente? Pentagram. Okay. It's the word five or 50. Leviticus 23, 15. Here it is. If you've been wondering where we get the name Pentecost, here it is. 
you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. Does anybody know what the day after the Sabbath is? Sunday. So from that day, the first Sabbath, they, when they came out of Egypt, there was freedom. The Red Sea opened. God's people left the bondage of Egypt behind, and they ran into freedom and into the hands of the Lord. They crossed the Red Sea. That next God ordained there to be a Sabbath day, and the day after that very first Sabbath was the day that they were to bring the sheaf of the wave offering. Now, now carefully notice, seven, everybody say seven, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Seven Sabbaths. If you do seven Saturdays, how many days will have gone by? Seven times seven, 49 right? And he says in verse 16, count 50 days to the day. There it is, 50 days. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. There we begin the celebration of Shavuot. There we begin the celebration of 50. And that's where we get the name Pentecost, what began in the Old Testament as an annual festival carried over into the lifetime of Jesus as the Feast of Pentecost. So when Jesus was growing up, every year there was the Feast of Pentecost. And what happened at the, at the festival 50 days after the resurrection or after the Passover, uh, the, 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 day, the Sunday after the Passover, what happened on that very first century, 30 A.D., Feast of Pentecost, after Jesus was raised from the dead, I cannot overstate the importance of it. We celebrated literally 50 days ago today, we celebrated Easter Sunday. How many of you counted it up and made sure? Just trust me, okay? 50 days. If you look at the calendar, the, the Jewish understanding of the calendar, where they begin at the, at the sunset, it's 50 days exactly today since Easter. So, Easter really is not a standalone holiday. Easter is not supposed to be taken one and done. Easter points to something so much more important than just the resurrection of the Savior. I'm glad he rose from the dead, but you know what? What does it really do for me? What does that mean to me? What's in it for me? I'm going to tell you what's in it for you is to wait and watch and see what happens 50 days later. 50 days later is when we find the Holy Ghost falling in the house in the in the city of Jerusalem where God's people had been studying, praying, waiting on God. Lo and behold, when the day of Pentecost was, whoa, I'm about to read that scripture, aren't I? Hold on now. Hold on. I'm very serious when I say that we better be careful if we call ourselves Christian. I cannot overstate the importance of the resurrection and what happened 50 days after Pentecost. It's essential, it's urgently important to the entire world to understand what happened on the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Praise God. I'm very serious when I say most Christians of the world need to celebrate, their, their, need to calibrate their relationship with God by referring to, Christians need to refer to, they need to submit to, and convert to Pentecost. Now, I, I know 
the entire world needs to do that. But today, most, by and large, we're all Christians in this room. At least you feel as though you are a Christian. And I certainly don't want to offend any Christians. But I have to say it again. Christianity's messed up. Pentecost needs to happen to Christianity. How do I know that? Well, there has not been enough reference to and submission to and converting to Pentecost. You're seeing it in this service this morning, completely unplanned, completely unscripted, God Almighty moving in our midst so that you could see this is Pentecost. It's not a program. It's not a show. It's not a performance. It's the power of God allowed to move in a gathering of God's people wherever they are. If they're on 5900 East Jail or if they're in Yangon, Burma, folks, come on, wherever you may be and whatever age you may be. Now, 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 can, I, just, I just have to tell you, and I'm, I'm really kind of sad to have to, to share some of this news with you, but we, we live in a world where Christianity, <laughs> I, I wish I could share with you some really good news about Christianity, but unfortunately, the, and I, I'm not going to go through all the, all the statistics, but Christians in the world are no better off than non-Christians in the world. Think about this. Did, you, did, did I just hear what he said? Did I just understand? Did, did he just say what I just said, thought he said? Christians in the world who consider themselves to be practicing Christians are barely any better off. But those who are, now, now I'm going to share a brand new terminology with you, okay? I've never used this before. There's a nominal Christian who calls themselves Christian in name only, but there's another term for American non-Christians who have made a decision to be not a non-Christian. If you're not a non-Christian, what are you? Christian. Okay, I mean, that's kind of where I'm going with this, but listen to this. There's this terminology called notional Christians. People who are Christian in notion. They don't really get up in the morning and think of being a Christian. They don't go to bed at night thinking of being a Christian. But if you confront them and you say, are you a non-Christian, they'll say no. That means they're notional. They just have this notion. But there's nothing in their lives that is changing anything in their world. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself, is what one survey asked all Christians and non-Christians. Okay, all right, so let's stop and think about that. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. If you want to find yourself, look within yourself. Would you believe that 91% of United States adults agreed, 91%? Yes, look inside yourself. Just look within. But people who call themselves practicing Christians, 76% said the same thing. Look within yourself. How many of you know we need to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith? If we want to know what life is all about, we got to look unto him, the help that comes from the hills, the God Almighty of the universe who created us. We can't look inside. We've got to look to him. So practicing Christians in the world say, this is a, this is a recent survey, 76% agreed. Yes, you must look within yourself. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. Hmm. Well, 
86% of United States adults said yes. 72% of Christians agreed. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. Everybody who agrees with that, raise your, raise your hand. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. We have been taught that, preached that from, from high school, college. Can I say it one more time? The highest goal in life to, is to enjoy it as much as possible. Ask the, the, the disciples of Jesus that, who died in his name. Ask Jesus himself, is the highest goal in life to enjoy it as much as possible and reject the pain of the cross? Thank God that's not the highest goal in life, right? But your American adult population said, 84% said thumbs up, yes. But of Christians who call themselves practicing Christians, two-thirds said yes. See, Christianity is sadly letting down the world. Christianity is. Now, I, I could go on and on, but I, don't, I, want, I want to bore you with these things. There, there, the statistics about pornography usage, the statistics about, uh, about, uh, about, um, about drug usage, the statistics about um, uh, uh, sexual faithfulness, promiscuity, those things across the board, those are almost the same among American Christians as they are among non-Christians. What is going on? Folks, that's why I don't want to just be a Christian who's notional or nominal in name only. I've got to go deeper. I want to go closer. I've got to figure out there's something that's missing, something that is wrong, something that is completely void in the Christian world. Uh, you're not, you, you didn't just happen to come to a typical, normal Christian church today. You did come to a Christian church because we believe in Jesus Christ. But I've got to tell you, the highest essence of being a Christian is to be like Jesus Christ himself and to let him be our example. I wish even the balcony would put your hands together and say amen to that. We're not just Christians in name only. Wow. Praise God. I, I think a lot of believers are rabbit hole Christians. I believe a lot of them are rabbit hole Christians. In the morning, they pop out of their safe little Christian home. They hold their breath at work, scurry on to their families, and then off to their Bible studies, and finally end the day praying for the unbelievers they safely avoided all day. How about we decide we're not going to be rabbit hole Christians? That's, that's a Christian world trying to cause, try, that, that, is, that is completely, completely lost and has lost the purpose of being a Christian. Now, I, I'm just got to make sure you understand some very important points because I could be very easily confusing some folks. To be a Christian is not to follow a world religion. To be a Christian, by definition, is to be like Christ. And Christians, to be Christ-like, must move beyond the cross, the empty grave, and to the day of Pentecost. Christ-like Christians. 
May I once again invite everyone here today to carefully examine and calibrate and maybe recalibrate if necessary your relationship with God by referring to, submitting to, and converting to Pentecost. I'm not ashamed to tell you that what's wrong with America's Christianity is it has lost Pentecost. It's time for us as God's people to say we're going to get out of our comfort zone. We're going to stand up stand for something. We're going to be willing to be something that is not just a normal, non-worldly person. We're not just going to be a name, quote-unquote, titled Christian. But God is calling us to be something more than just a group, just a religion, just an institution. He's calling us to be a people who are set apart. It's called the church of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, the church of Jesus Christ is built upon the very beautiful, beautiful revelation that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we're baptized in his name, just like Masahari was and just like Monica was today, you are submitting to the fact that you were a Pentecostal influenced Christian. Come on, somebody say amen. Amen. Hallelujah. The vital understanding of pure versus primitive. I really need to make sure we understand this, okay? I talked to a lot of people, and this has come to light for me. It's easy to reflect on historical things like World War II or like the Civil War and automatically think, yeah, those were primitive, unrefined, unworthy. We're so much more advanced today. Pentecost, as in all things of biblical record, Pentecost does not accurately fall under that kind of a consideration that it is primitive. It's not primitive. Pentecost is like a standard. It's like a weight or a measure. It carries global and timeless authority. Pentecost. Have you ever, have any of you ever done any woodwork and you know that you've got to measure twice, cut once? Measure twice, cut once. You know what measure twice, cut once means? It means make sure you get your first reference down, confirm it again, then cut because you can't add to a cut piece of wood or anything else. It's cut, it's cut, right? What's amazing about Pentecost is this. Pentecost is that beautiful standard of measurement that if we can look back to the first century and see what happened then, we have a true measure of how to live our lives and how to relate to Almighty God and how to be a part of His work in these closing days of time. Even though Christianity around us is cold, we can be people of Pentecost who stand and say, I am not going to just be someone who is going with the flow and someone who blends in with the crowd, but I'm ready to to be someone who stands up and lets there be a standard that comes through through my life. I want to be someone who carries authority of the Word of God. Hallelujah. And the Word of God is forever settled in heaven. So here it's like a flowing stream. That's what Pentecost is. It's not primitive, but it is, as I said, it is pure. Everybody say pure. Why isn't it worthy or healthy to drink from a flowing stream at any point along its course. Once its headwaters bubble out of the ground and they release from the dark, pure depths of the earth, introducing the refreshing flow to the atmosphere, instantly that water becomes susceptible to contamination 
stagnancy at best, poisoning at worst. I love driving to Leadville, Colorado, and there's a sign that said, says Headwaters of the Arkansas River. I love going to Grand Lake and knowing that right up the, right up the, 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 the channel of, of, of rivers leading up into the high country, there is the beginning of the Colorado River boiling and bubbling out of the, of the rocks from the deep, pure darkness of the ground underneath. And as it comes to the surface, it begins to flow. And it flows down the Colorado River all the way to the Sea of Cortez. And it brings life. It brings health. It brings refreshing to California, to Nevada, to Colorado. And, of course, folks, I want to thank God here today. That, that, I, that I live in a state that's so beautiful where we can actually take pictures like this in our minds and we can recognize that, we, that, that this is the truth right here. If you want to take a drink out of the Colorado River, I tell you it would not be a very good idea for you to go to the Sea of Cortez and drink it after it's passed through so many dead bodies and so many treatment plants and gone through so many boat motors, right? If you want to drink it, then we need to take a little hike up above, Adam, up above, up above Adams Falls, above, above, uh, above Grand Lake, and keep on walking up that, that trail where the, probably right now I can picture it in my mind's eye. We've got mountain flowers blooming. It's a beautiful day up there, and, and you've got birds singing, and you've got a little, probably little brookies floating in the, in the river. Don't drink it there. Keep walking upstream. Go up until you can't really see it anymore. Kneel down. And when you see the, the water seeping out of the ground, you realize this is the pure. This is what has just come out of the ground. This is where I can safely drink without worrying about contamination, stagnation, or poison. That is exactly what Pentecost is. The very first day of Pentecost is not primitive. It is pure. It is the time we look to as an example. And we say, God, you gave us Pentecost. And we're a part of Pentecost today because we still refer back to that point in time. We're not going to fall prey to man-made religious Christianity. Man-made religious Christianity is contaminated and poisoned and stagnant. But if you'll join me and we say, God, I want to be Pentecostal regardless of where I'm going to church. I want to be Pentecostal whether or not I'm able to get to church. I want to be Pentecostal, Lord, come hell or high water. I want to be a Pentecostal Christian. Praise God. I'm going to tell you, Pentecostal is not a religion. It's not a denomination. It's not an institution. It's not a culture. It's not just a social gathering. Pentecost is a fixed point in time from which the headwaters of human spiritual transformation planned by God from the beginning, burst upon the dry, thirsty desert of human hopelessness. Woo, hallelujah. Thank God for Pentecost. When Pentecost is given its proper place, folks, we can then begin the simple understanding of exactly what God released upon the earth's population at that moment. Are you ready? Here's the watershed moment of Pentecost when everything changed between God and people, Acts 2, 1 and 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, all of God's disciples, 120 of them were gathered. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Anybody here sitting right now? The Holy Ghost can move on you today where you 
are sitting. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them divided tongues as a fire. One sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That is exactly what I'm preaching about today when it comes to Pentecost. And then there was a gathered crowd around them. And a couple of verses later, the Bible says in verse 12, they were, those, those onlookers were amazed and perplexed. They said to one another, what could this mean? Are these people crazy? Have they lost their minds? Others mocking said, yes, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Heed my words. These are not drunk as you suppose. Since it is only the third hour of the day, it's still morning time. It's still time to eat our Wheaties and drink our coffee. It's not imbibing drunkard's time. They're not drunk. It's just morning. It's the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Joel said, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all smart people. I will pour out my spirit upon all handsome men, all beautiful women. I will pour out my spirit upon all those who have an IQ that is a little bit higher than room temperature. No. He said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That's you and that's me. There's nobody left out. There is nobody that's sidelined, nobody that's distinguished, no one that's left on the, in the gutter or left aside. God Almighty says, I will pour it out on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men dream dreams. He said, on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And then Paul, then the apostle Peter says, let everyone know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus who you crucified. I mean, we can still walk out there and we can see the hole on Mount Calvary where that beam was dropped into the ground. If you look around, you might even still see some drops of blood and some pieces of the garment of Jesus because this was just a matter of 50 days ago. This same Jesus who you crucified The Lord has made him, God has made him Lord and Christ. That was Messiah you killed. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? I felt it in the spirit this morning with Brother Masahari up here praying in the front. I felt that spirit of urgency. What shall we do? What must happen to me? How do I take the next step? How do I get out of the bondage and the chains and the things that are holding me down and get out of the weights that I put upon myself through this life? How do I burst forth into freedom? I'll tell you what, you can't just go to a notional Christian church, unfortunately. Unfortunately, you just can't talk to a notional Christian person. You've got to talk to someone who can tell you there is transformation if you come with us to the headwaters where Pentecost is still preached. Pentecost is this message right here. Here's what we must do. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Whoa, and when you do that, you shall receive. 
you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is mine. Everybody say, the Holy Spirit is mine. For the promises to you, your children, to all who are afar off, even in Ephesus in a few years, even in Asia in a few years, even in Denver, Colorado in 2,000 years. Here you and I sit blessed to know that it's not about a, a church, a, don, a denomination. It's not about a priest, a pastor, a father, a church figurehead. This is about Pentecost. Ooh, what would happen if the Christian world could wake up to where it really started? Could go back to the very headwaters of where it all began? Can I tell you it's got nothing to do with a church creed or a confession or a church father? This has everything to do with you and me saying, I can go back to the simple, primitive your beginning where it all began and I myself can be a Pentecostal just like they were on the day of Pentecost. So I'm wrapping this message up with these slides. Here we go. Don't be afraid to ask yourself, am I a Christian in notion only? Don't be afraid to ask yourself, am I a Christian in name only? Here's what you need to ask. I don't want you to be afraid to ask this question. Do I have Pentecostal DNA? Here's, here's, here's what's awesome. You came to the right place to find out today. This message is straight from the Bible. This message offers a conclusion to your spiritual genetics testing. Everybody ready to do some genetic testing today on your spirit? Genetic testing is in order if you'd like to be certain that you're living up to the incredible promise. You ready? Here's what happens when you really are truly living at the headwaters. The first DNA strand of genuine Pentecostal Christianity is this. Pentecost generates devoted Christians. That's right. Right after the day of Pentecost, they didn't just blend into the world and just go about their daily business and act like nothing happened. That's why I don't like us leaving church on Sunday and saying, well, I'm just going to do the same thing I did on Monday last Monday. No, this is going to be a new Monday. This is a new week this is a new day. They continued steadfastly, the Bible says, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. So devoted Christians are generated by, you see the word generate means to be given birth to. It means those who are finding their origination and their creation comes from that point. Pentecost generates devoted Christians. Everybody say devoted Christians. Next thing, another verse after the day of Pentecost tells us this. Pentecost generates wonder-struck Christians. <sighs> Don't you tell me you're Christian if I can't see a little gleam in your eye that there's something wonderful going on. 
that there's something life-changing that's happened. Don't you tell me you're Christian if you can't say, there is a God who has loved me to the point he died for me and he didn't stay in the grave. I am wonderstruck over what he did for me. He came back uh, in the form of the Holy Ghost on Pentecost Sunday. And today, I have the privilege of having his spirit inside of me and I'm wonderstruck. Anybody wonderstruck today? You know what I think we ought to do as a people? If you're feeling wonderstruck right now, would you just lift your hands and say, God, please don't let me ever lose the wonder. Lord, please don't let me ever forget the amazing grace of our God. Pentecost generates integrated Christians. Hallelujah. I'm almost finished. Almost finished. Wrapping up here. Pentecost. I could go on and on and on. This could be a series, but today I'm giving you the highlights, integrated Christians. The Bible says all who believed were together. When I said wonderstruck, the Bible tells us that fear came upon every soul. They were wonderstruck. Pentecost generates integrated Christians. Pentecost generates generous Christians. How do I know that, Brother Haman? Well... Acts 2.44 said all who believed were together and had all things in common. They went home from their Pentecostal experience and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They were generous Christians. Two more. The fifth strand of genuine Pentecostal Christianity DNA is this. Pentecost generates joyously worshiping Christians. Woo! Pastor, what are you telling us this morning in this fairly lengthy message? What are you telling us? I'm telling you, Christianity doesn't know what it's missing until it finds Pentecost. Hallelujah. Joyously worshiping Christians are generated when they walk out of a Pentecostal service like this one today. If you do not have the Holy Ghost, I want to invite you today to be filled with the Spirit of God so you can be just like these people. The Bible says they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those such as were being saved. All right, I'd like for all the notional nominal Christians to be well, feel free to sit, keep your seats, but I want anybody who'd like to become a joyously worshiping Christian to stand to your feet right now. And I think joyously worshiping Christians need to say, okay, I'm ready for some Pentecostal power to fresh fall on me. I could use a fresh touch of God today. I may be at a distance from the altar. I may be a little ways from the center of worship in the sanctuary. No, no, no. You are the center of worship in this sanctuary right now. Can I invite everybody right now to just call upon the Lord as, as, as the center of your own world right now, the center of your own soul, and let's let God see if you're worshiping joyously today. Can anybody turn a smile to the heavens and say, God, I want to thank you for what happened to me when I was baptized in Jesus' name, when I was filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, when I spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. Lord God, I became a joyously worshiping Christian. Woo. Thank God. Come on, let's put our hands together for the Lord right now. Hallelujah. Joyously worshiping.
Finally, Ooh, I feel the joy of the Holy Ghost right now in my spirit. I feel the joy of the Holy Ghost. I hope this message is making sense because I'm challenging the Pentecostal world to start impacting Christianity. If you've got neighbors who call themselves Christians, start out by saying, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? <laughs> Final strand of DNA to, shoot, to find whether or not you're a genuine Pentecostal is this. Pentecost generates born-again Christians. <laughs> born-again few months before the Pentecost Sunday happened, Jesus told us that rebirth involves both water and spirit. In John 3, 5, Jesus answered and said, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that same preacher of Acts 2 we've been reading about, he later wrote about the absolute essentiality of baptism. Would you take a look at 1 Peter 3, 21? He says... There is also an antitype which now saves us. Antitype means which is the gentle, genuine and authentic article. It's not just a type of the past, but it's the genuine substance of the example of the flood of Noah. The actual substance of the flood of Noah was not the flood. It was the fact that now baptism, everybody say baptism, doth also now save us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Sister Monica, are you feeling any different in your conscience today? Brother Masahari, are you feeling any different in your conscience today? <laughs> That's what baptism does for people. The answer of a good conscience toward God to the resurrection of Christ. And about spirit rebirth, I want you to notice the end of life essentiality. Romans 8, 9 says this, You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. Without the spirit, you don't belong to Christ verses later says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead 50 days before Pentecost, if that same spirit that raised him from the dead dwells in you, <laughs> he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Thank you, God, for the privilege of being born 